This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. So, as far as exorcisms go, I've covered a few. From Michael Taylor in Season 2, and recently Arnie Johnson and Clara Germanisele. But there is one case, one alleged case that kind of represents the OG when it comes to demonic possession in the United States. Funny thing is, we don't even know the kid's real name. He was underage, and the church used a fake name to protect his identity. But the story's out there, and with a little digging, you'd be able to get some details that separate this case from all the others and show a stark difference in how things were investigated, addressed, and ultimately reported on in the days before social media and the 24-hour news cycle. This was, after all, 1949, a very conservative time in post-war America, and the last thing anyone would expect from their mass media outlets were sensationalized stories meant to scare the public. They had had enough real horror stories from the front lines of World War II, and the greatest generation was busy with the important work of building the greatest country the world has ever known. So it's safe to say that it came as a shock when several mainstream newspapers ran stories about a 14-year-old boy from Maryland who had come under the influence of demonic possession. Welcome back to The Devil Within. You're listening to the curious case of Roland Doe. Let's get it out of the way right off the bat. Roland Doe is a funny name. I mean, why not use John Doe if you're going for the anonymity thing? If you say Roland Doe casually, Roland Doe, it sounds like you'd be describing the actions of a pizza maker. That guy? Yeah, he's Roland Doe. Over the years, other names for this anonymous kid have come out. Robbie Mannheim is one of them that people gave a lot of credence to. But finally, in 2021, it was revealed that after years of exhaustive investigative work, the real identity of Roland Doe was Ronald Edwin Hunkler. I say was because Mr. Hunkler died in 2020. But out of respect for the lost, let's use the kid's real name, Ronald as we go forward today. So this story takes place in three different locations with several different priests. I mean, even the Jesuits got involved. Let's discuss them for a second. They're pretty cool. The Society of Jesus, later called the Order of the Jesuits, was founded in Paris in 1534 by a former Spanish soldier-turned-priest named Ignatius de Loyola. He, along with six other students, met in a crypt beneath a church in Montmartre in Paris and took perpetual vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Their desire was to travel to Jerusalem and convert Muslims to Christianity. I'm sure that would have gone awesome for them, but because of the Turkish wars, travel to the Holy Land was impossible. Instead, they went to Rome and petitioned the Pope to formally recognize their new religious order. Pope Paul III granted his approval and the Jesuit order was born. 
There have been times of tremendous controversy regarding the Order of the Jesuits. In the 18th century, most of them were expelled from Europe, and in 1773, Pope Clement XIV even went so far as to completely dissolve the order for fear of their growing global influence. But in 1814, the Jesuits were restored by Pope Pius VII, and they've been around ever since. But why all the controversy? First was their additional vow of strict obedience to the Pope. This worried many Catholics that, in areas where Jesuits were active, local interests would be cast aside in favor of what was best for Rome. Also, the Jesuits' primary concern was education, not necessarily theology, although that was always a foundational element of their studies, but so was philosophy, history, mathematics, the teachings of big thinkers like Aristotle and Socrates. The Jesuits were the intellectual branch of the church, and they knew it. They flaunted it. Their success in penetrating a society for purposes of conversion to Christianity were unmatched. They consider themselves to be on the cutting edge, and they were. Jesuits have always been willing to entertain ideas that run contrary to the ancient dogma of the church. Modern Jesuits have made enemies by stating that the devil is a, quote, symbolic reality and not a real being. That's not what Catholics are supposed to believe. And ask a Jesuit what he thinks. Yes, he, there are still no female Jesuits. So maybe not all that cutting edge after all, but ask a Jesuit what he thinks of homosexuality. And you might not get the party line answer of, quote, love the sinner, hate the sin. A Jesuit even recently remarked that the church was incorrect in their belief regarding gay people and that their stance was in fact discredited by science. So yeah, controversy, but also conversion. They considered themselves soldiers of God, educated disciples, and obedient to the Pope above all. A very interesting order of Catholic men. And a few Jesuits play a big role in today's story. When the newspaper articles began to circulate, they were written anonymously, by the way, the story became very popular very quickly, a 1940s version of going viral. Other papers picked it up, and in the coming weeks and months, everyone wanted to know the whole story of what befell young Ronald. Let's go back to 1935 in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where Ronald Hunkler was born and raised. Ronald, a child of German immigrants, was born into a strict Lutheran household and was an only child. Lutheranism is based on the teachings of the 16th century German monk Martin Luther, a major reformer who rebelled against many teachings of the Catholic Church and launched the Protestant Reformation. The three main principles of Lutheranism are as follows. Grace alone, meaning they believed they are saved only by the grace of God, not by anything that we do. The definition of grace being, quote, an undeserved gift from God. Then there's faith alone. The absolute belief in Christ's forgiveness is all that's necessary. You really don't have to take any action, nothing besides perfect faith. And finally, we have scripture alone. Yeah, all about the Bible. Lutherans believe that the Bible is the perfect word of God and true from beginning to end. So they're a faithful bunch, 
and also known for being strict disciplinarians when it comes to raising children. So it was something of a strange addition to the family when Ronald's maternal Aunt Harriet was invited to move in. Strange because Aunt Harriet was decidedly not a Lutheran. She was, in fact, a spiritualist. Now that term, spiritualist, may conjure some thoughts of a person dedicated to meditation and yoga and acceptance of all types of religious contemplation. We all know people who love to say that they're not religious, they're spiritual. Well, that wasn't Aunt Harriet. The term spiritualist is in fact very narrowly defined as someone who believes that spirits of the dead walk among us and can be communicated with. Aunt Harriet was that type of influence on young Ronald. See, Ronald was a shy boy who didn't have many friends, and without a sibling to spend time with while mom and dad were at work, Aunt Harriet was his closest companion. And she taught him all sorts of things. One of Aunt Harriet's favorite activities was using her Ouija board to conduct seances with young Ronald. A Ouija board, also known as a spirit board or a witch board, is a thin, flat board, very smooth, with the letters of the alphabet stenciled on the surface, along with the words yes and no, a few other symbols, and then the word goodbye. The users lightly place the tips of their fingers on what's called a planchette, a flat, heart-shaped piece of wood or plastic about the size of a normal human hand and with a small viewing window right in the middle of it. Users then ask questions of the spirits present in the room, and through their light touch on the planchette, it will be moved by the spirits to spell out their otherworldly answers. Let me get ahead of the obvious question. Yes, it is necessary for users to be touching the viewing apparatus for the, uh, you know, the spiritual connection to be complete. Not at all, because that's what actually moves the device. No, no. The movement is caused by the unseen hands of the unsettled ghosts that are desperate to answer your earthly questions. And the only way they can communicate is through a child's toy. Anyway, Aunt Harriet and young Ronald whiled away many and many a lazy afternoon conversing with the dead, one letter at a time. Funny, Ronald often thought, these spirits always misspell the same words my aunt does in her letters to me. I'm sure that's just some cosmic coincidence. But Ronald, no doubt due to his strict Lutheran upbringing, was a true believer. And Aunt Harriet conveyed to him the dangers of getting too involved with the Ouija crowd. Things can get serious in a hurry. Well, how so? Ronald wondered. Well, Harriet responded, if any evil spirits happen to be about and they're interested in possessing someone, an experienced Ouija practitioner is at a great disadvantage due to their openness to the spiritual realm. Ronald dismissed this warning as an old wives' tale. I mean, all the other stuff, totally legit. <laughs> but this demonic possession business? No way!
Ronald was 13 when his beloved Aunt Harriet, his closest friend in the world, passed away. Suffice it to say that Ronald was crushed. In his grief, he found himself, as anyone would, desperate to speak to his friend again. And lucky for him, he knew he had a way to do just that. He broke out his late aunt's trusty Ouija board and got to work, hoping against hope that his beloved Aunt Harriet would stick around to let him know that everything was okay. Instead, it would appear that Ronald was invaded by an opportunistic evil spirit that took advantage of his grief. In a matter of days, Ronald began to display behavioral characteristics that are all too common in cases of demonic possession. Mood swings, fits of rage, sudden knowledge of Latin, low grunts and growling noises. Plus, Ronald seemed to be very bothered by the darkness. During the daylight hours, all seemed well with the young man, but at night, it was like he would transform into a snarling beast. For the record, use of Ouija boards were considered way too risky for the Catholic Church. They knew an invitation for demonic possession when they saw one. Less so with the Lutherans. From my research, they took no position beyond their belief in the three main principles. So they felt this was nothing to be scared of because God would take care of things as long as their faith was pure. But something was very wrong with Ronald, and he wasn't getting any better. After visits with several local doctors, therapists, and psychiatrists, Ronald's parents reached out to their local Lutheran minister, again with no luck. In fact, their minister made the critical suggestion that would take this story to a whole new place. Call the Jesuits. Instead, they were put in contact with Father Albert Hughes of one of the larger Catholic churches in the D.C. area. After the good father spoke with Donald's parents and, of course, observed Ronald's incredible behavior, he immediately followed protocol and asked his higher-ups for permission to perform an exorcism. He presented his evidence, and that permission was quickly granted. The next evening, Father Albert arrived at Ronald's, and he, along with Ronald's parents, found Ronald writhing in his bed. It was already dark, and the boy's suffering had begun. Father Albert's first order of business was to tie Ronald's wrists and feet to the bedposts to protect both the boy and himself. But Father Albert had no idea what he was up against, for just as he was about to secure the final lash to the young man's wrist, the boy somehow was able to snap off a jagged piece of a bedspring and viciously slash at Father Albert, opening up a gash in the man's shoulder. Unable to finish due to his need for immediate medical attention and probably several stitches, the exorcism was called off, and further, Father Albert suggested more qualified exorcists. Two days later, as Ronald's parents were still contemplating their next move, Ronald's mother went to check on her troubled boy and discovered, to her horror, that bloody scratches had appeared on Ronald's skin in the form of letters spelling out the word Lewis. Ronald's mother interpreted this as a message from God that the family needed to go stay with relatives in St. Louis, Missouri. She strongly felt this was God's will and the best way to help her son. 
and she turned out to be right. Ronald's family had a distant cousin enrolled at St. Louis University, a Jesuit Catholic institution of learning known around the world. Through their cousin, the family was introduced to Father Walter Halloran and Reverend William Bowdern. These two young Jesuits took the same tack as Father Albert back in D.C. Talk to the parents, observe the kid, ask permission from their elders, then get to work. In early March of 1949, the family of Ronald Hunkler, along with the two Jesuits tasked with saving the boy's soul, gathered in a handsome brick home on Roanoke Drive in St. Louis and began what would be a nearly three-week ordeal that put the teenager through unimaginable pain and suffering. The priests, however, made some pretty outlandish claims. Objects flying through the air for no reason and without explanation, the bed shaking violently, again seemingly of its own volition. The men did notice the now familiar routine of Ronald appearing to be a normal kid during the day and completely changing as darkness fell. But the priests also began to observe these, quote, spontaneous scratches appearing on Ronald's chest. One in the shape of an X, which led the priests to believe they were dealing with ten demons fighting for control of the boy. And one of these spontaneous scratches seemed to migrate down the boy's leg and become an open wound on one of his feet. By March 20th, with absolutely zero progress made, the parents decided to move their son to a proper hospital. They continued to work with the two Jesuits. They just wanted a safer environment, close to professional medical care, in case things went south. So, the operation was moved to the Alexia Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. For another month, the exorcism continued, until finally, on April 18th, 1949, an apparent miracle occurred in Ronald's room. Desperate for some sign of progress, Father Halloran and Reverend Bowdern pulled out all the stops. Through Ronald's fierce objections, the two men placed every holy relic they could find directly on Ronald's flesh. Crosses, medals, rosaries, holy water. The boy was writhing in pain, screaming obscenities, threatening that Satan would punish them all forever. And then, Father Halloran came in from the top rope with his holy coup de grace. He announced to the great demon inhabiting Ronald's body that St. Michael himself was awaiting his arrival at that great battlefield in the kingdom of heaven where he would forever vanquish the fallen angel. Ronald suddenly fell into what appeared to be a deep trance for several minutes, and then when he awoke, he simply announced, he's gone. After a moment, Ronald gave a quizzical look to the priests and told them that he had just had a dream of Satan and St. Michael engaged in an epic battle, a battle that Satan lost. After the successful exorcism of Ronald Hunkler, his family moved back east, and as far as anyone can tell, Ronald lived a happy, full life until his death in 2020 at the age of 85. The Alexia Brothers Hospital was torn down in 1978, but according to sources, the room where the exorcism was performed was sealed immediately after and never used again. The house where the family lived in Maryland was torn down in the 1960s. 
The house in St. Louis that hosted the first three weeks of Ronald's exorcism still stands and has been through many owners since. Reverend Bowdern died in 1983. Father Halloran outlived his partner in exorcism by more than 30 years, dying of cancer in 2005. Here's the interesting part. In the decades that followed, there were two in-depth investigations into the Ronald Hunkler possession case, and the results were pretty, well, pretty damning. But they also kind of make sense. One of these investigations was by a man named Mike Opsasnik, who flat out questioned every supernatural claim made either by the boy's family or by the priests. He could find no evidence that Father Albert of Washington, D.C., ever even attempted an exorcism, let alone any indication that he received a terrible gash to his shoulder at the hand of a possessed teenager. Further, reading the statement submitted by Father Albert, it seems that despite the scratches on the boy's body, the fingernails were never examined to determine if the boy made the marks himself. Then we have the famed skeptic Joe Nickel, who proclaimed that there was, quote, simply no evidence to support demonic possession, and maintained that the, quote, symptoms of possession can be childishly easy to fake. He concluded his report with the following statement. Quote, Nothing that was reliably reported in the case was beyond the abilities of a teenager to produce. The tantrums, trances, moved furniture, hurled objects, automatic writing, superficial scratches, and other phenomena were just the kinds of things someone of Ronald's age could accomplish, just as others have done before and since. Indeed, the elements of poltergeist phenomena, spirit communication, and demonic possession, taken both separately and especially together, as one progressed to the other, suggest nothing so much as role-playing involving trickery. Okay. In the end, the skeptics agree that Ronald was simply a spoiled, disturbed bully who threw deliberate tantrums to get attention or to get out of school. Well, I'll tell you something. That was either an incredibly bored or incredibly disturbed 14-year-old to keep up a charade like that for months on end. Just think of how hard it is to remember a stupid lie you told the energy required to maintain that illusion, no matter how insignificant. Now think of Ronald's utter commitment to his lie. It's kind of impressive in a strange but sad way. I hope he found what he needed and lived a good life. Thanks for listening to The Devil Within. Please make sure you're following The Devil Within wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also check out our socials at The Devil Within Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Until next time, stay safe out there. The Devil Within is a Cloud 10 Media production, recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.